0: 20 years ago, Gary Williams won the NCAA title for Maryland and Turtle fans everywhere. Led by seniors Juan Dixon and Lonnie Baxter, it was a fearless team that had been to the Final Four the year before. Much of that intrepid confidence came from Gary himself, who went from being a gym rat JV high school coach in New Jersey to the Basketball Hall of Fame. And in between, he made a lot of friends and he has a lot of memories. Hello, Gary.
1: Hi, Leslie. How are you doing?
0: You know what? I'm doing really well, and I had the privilege of being at your Final Four, but I always like to ask the coaches who win, uh, give me your emotion of the actual cutting down the nets. Like, what What were you feeling?
1: Well, I was happy for the, uh, the team and the university, uh, all our fans. We Never had won a national championship. We were a good basketball school. Lefty Rizzell had some great teams, but you know how it goes. It, when it's a one and done deal, you just have that bad night, or one guy sprained his ankle the day before, and all of a sudden you get beat, even though you might have a team good enough to win it. So everything went well then, and I, I just felt that it was a great thing for all, all of Maryland, not not just for our basketball team, or you know. And I had my own personal feelings about it, which you know was. Uh, it was a great feeling obviously but at the same time you know I had I had several teams I thought were good enough to win it one at Boston College and uh you know didn't get it done and and you know you start wondering if you're ever going to do it that that was the other feeling like you know what what's the deal here? I've seen guys I think I can coach with that win it and we haven't won it yet.
0: But it was I think it spoke to more than just uh a school winning a Final Four. I, I worked for years with Lenny Elmore, and you know, Lenny would cry. I mean, it was so important to so many people from Maryland. Our, our timeline—if
1: you looked at a timeline of Maryland basketball—it's not perfect. You know, there, there's been there, there's been no more um, bigger thing in college basketball than when Lynn Bias died, and that affected everybody. It affected the university. It affected the basketball program. Um, cost left you to resolve job, you know, just just things that you can't imagine can happen uh, in that situation. And so we had to fight through all those things. But, you know, for all the Maryland people that kind of made it sweeter, I think, because we weren't one of these gifted programs. that's always been good every year, you know, things like that. So um, I was really pleased that happened. And being a Maryland grad and, you know, having played uh, some very average basketball for the university, uh, it, it was a big thrill for me.
0: Will you tell before we're going to bounce around here, but remember the story of when you played Billy Cunningham, will you tell that story that led to your career?
1: That is a true story. You know, you're coming out of high school. I was all South Jersey. I, I thought I was a good player. I go to Maryland on a basketball scholarship. You couldn't play your freshman year. So all, all, you know, you played other freshman teams. We were 16 and one. So I thought we were still really good and I was going to play in the NBA. So my sophomore year, we were playing North Carolina, and Billy Cunningham was their uh, best player, obviously, you know, one of the 75 greatest of all time. And of course, I wasn't guarding him, but I was guarding the guy in the corner. And our our coach was really big on helping defense, helping man-to-man defense. And so Billy had the ball at the top of the circle. I knew he was going to drive. I knew he was left-handed. I knew where he was going. So I got off of my man and got right in the middle of the lane, right in front of the basket. So I was going to take a charge, and my coach really liked that. And I, I thought, wow, this is going to be great. So I get there and I, you know, you you flex a little bit so you, you don't take the full brunt of the uh the blow, because Cunningham's pretty big. And he comes in and like I basically close my eyes getting ready for the contact. Next thing I see is this converse basketball shoe <laughs> going over my right shoulder as he was dunking on me. And I I I got to to know Billy pretty well after the fact. It, and, I said, do you ever remember that play? He says, of course I remember it. I dunked all over you. you know, that was, I thought that was nice to remember, though, all the games he played.
0: Isn't that, isn't that when you said you decided, maybe I'll go into coaching? Oh, yeah.
1: That was it. <laughs> that, that, was, that was, I think a lot of players ought to look at this. When, when they realize they're, they're not good enough to play, and that's, that's a tough reality thing, especially with guys today. They're not good enough. They're not going to play professionally. So the, you start looking at the game. If you want to stay with the game, you started looking at it from a coaching perspective. And there was great coaches in the ACC. And you you start watching what they do, how they ran their offense, things like that. So, And it helped you as a player. That, that, that made you a better player doing that too. But I, I wasn't very smart, but I was smart enough to do that because I really didn't see anything academically that I liked when I was in school. So I figured I better try coaching.
0: You mentioned a little bit about Maryland. Why do you think Maryland has always struggled for relevance?
1: You know, until we left the ACC, we were in a league where we had two programs picked in the top five in the country every year preseason. So it was always, well, you're no better than third. That's the best you can be. And so you heard that all the time and you heard it nationally all the time. And it was we didn't like it. And so when I got the Maryland job in 89, I tried to fight it. And, you know, we did get as good as those teams several years where, you know, those, those games, our games with Duke, or games with Carolina were the highest rated TV games in the country. And, you know, I was proud of that because when I got the job, we, we, we got beat by 30, I think, by both of them my first year so. Uh, we had to work our way out of that to get to where we could be competitive.
0: You called your win over Duke uh, the most important game in the history of Cole House
1: yeah that that was big because um, if we needed confidence that they gave us the confidence that we could uh, uh play anybody in the country once you got to the NCAA tournament. and we had lost our only loss that year in the conference was uh, at Duke, and a, a very difficult place to play, as everybody knows, but at the same time, I think that was a step necessary to uh just the idea that you know you mentioned before, uh, the relevance thing. These guys must be good because they beat Duke, and that—that that was the feeling uh, around the country after we did that because it was a national TV game.
0: You're going to celebrate uh, next week the 20th anniversary. Big uh, uh, commemorative T-shirts, and are they going to say "Oh, he steal"? I mean, do you hear that all the time? Does Steve Blake hear that all the time?
1: No, it'll feature the championship game. That—that that was. That was a that was a game along the way. That was a big game for us, but I'd rather have the games from the NCAA tournament on there than uh, the Duke game.
0: Although I always found that surprising. That um, yes, you're correct. It was so important to you that year. It was just such a, a great game. It was such a great win. But you went to see Texas Western, which you don't regard that as the biggest game in Cole Field House.
1: Well, historic for historic reasons, yes. But for Maryland basketball, no. Uh, You know that that was that was the game where the Southeastern Conference had to integrate after that game. They had no choice. The interesting thing about that game, Texas Western during the year, didn't just start Black Eyes all year. They had they had a mix. And back then, coaches would change their starting lineup depending on who you played because of matchups and things like that. So that game, particular game, um, playing Kentucky, Kentucky was really small. So the Texas Western put their quickest team out on the floor. And it happened to have five black guys in the team, so um, it was really interesting. I, and see, what, while you're there, I think I was a junior in uh, college. You don't you don't realize the importance of that game until time goes by. Um, and I, I watched the um, the movie Glory Road, and it, it was close. You know, they 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 took some liberties with uh, what went on in Cold Fieldhouse House during the game and things like that. But uh, no, that that was historic, and that shows you Cold Fieldhouse, House, though. I think there was three final fours in Coalfield House, maybe six regionals, just one of the great on-campus facilities ever.
0: I remember just following, going back and looking at those games from from sixty six and uh, amazing that Pat Riley jumped center, and right. the other debate was um, whether or not JoJo's foot was on the line, <laughs> whether or not Kansas should have been in uh, the final four, but you know, history was made with Texas Western.
1: yeah, I, I think back then. No replays.
0: Right. <laughs> so we'll
1: never know. We'll never know. But uh, the only thing that gets me about those replays, though, you know, when they do overturn the play at the end of the game, well, how many plays should they have overturned during the game? Maybe the game's not close if they were overturned a couple plays during the game where that replay won't even matter. So it, 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 it's a slippery slope when you start going in that direction. And they say, well, we got the play right. Well, you got that play. Right. But maybe there was plays leading up to that that would allow the other team to win. Without that last play being that important,
0: did uh, did you think after you left Maryland, it they haven't been near that prominence again? And now you have a coaching vacancy there. Like, what's your philosophy on what kind of coach you'd like to see at Maryland? Well,
1: when you coach, unless you know from Boston, when you coach in a pro town, it's different being a college coach. I mean, forget basketball in Boston. You had the hockey. You had baseball. The Patriots came on, you know, pretty good, and then you had the Celtics, who were a dynasty uh, during the '80s when I was there at Boston College. So, you need more than just an X and O guy. The guy's got to be—he's got to be personality-wise. He's got to be able to win the media. Uh, He's got to be able to win our fans because a lot of our fans have season tickets to the Wizards or the Capitals. you know, the nationals, things like that the the Redskins well, I'm not it's not the Redskins anymore. it's the commanders now, and uh, it's it's really a difficult thing now, when you're good and you win, people will come to the game. But a good example of that is when I went to Ohio State <clears throat> from Boston College, my first game was against Bucknell at home at our place, and Bucknell wasn't good then. Bucknells had some good teams in the meantime, but they weren't good then, and we they sold out the, the arena. Uh, because they wanted to help the basketball program win. Now, I think if you look at Maryland, you have to win and then the people will come to the game. And that's the difference in a pro town. I've I've always felt that. And I learned that in Boston when I coached at BC. Uh
0: Well, I have many memories of you, of course, at Boston College. Thank you for winning the Big East title your first year yes, in 83. And I was your beat writer there. And of course, I was heartbroken when you left for Ohio State. And I said, Gary, why are you leaving B.C.? And you said, because I didn't take a vow of poverty.
1: The good Jesuits, uh, <laughs> they they were great to work with. though. Um, in fact, we had a guy, we, we had a Jesuit priest who loved basketball. He'd come to practice every day. He wasn't teaching. He'd be at practice. He'd sit in the first row there um, and. Uh, he was a great guy. In fact, his job was at our home games. The Blue Chips, I guess, were the name of the uh, support group at BC. So his job was to go downstairs about two minutes left in the game and set up a bar so the Blue Chip guys would have a place to go drink after the game. <laughs> of course. And he, and he did a terrific job. You know, he was really good. But uh, BC was spectacular, you know, for a lot of reasons. And to his credit, Bill Flynn, the athletic director, then when you think about it, only Notre Dame and BC still play Division One football of all the Catholic schools, you know the Power Conference football, whatever. And it's amazing that he did that because BC didn't have a lot of money in their athletic department. Plus, they supported hockey just like it was a major sport, which it is at Boston College. And you know, football is a drain if you're not making a lot of money. If you don't have a hundred thousand seat stadium, football is really a drain on any athletic department budget. So somehow, some way, Bill Flynn got it done there.
0: People don't. No Robert Center, right? Which was practically oh. an old army base. But I remember you said uh, you didn't really want to play too many games. I think Dave Gavitt said, "Why don't you play in the garden?" And no, Dave, said,
1: Dave said, "You have to play in the garden." Oh, you have to. Oh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, that's why I was yeah. a genius
1: Yeah. Well, that, that same year, Georgetown had to move downtown uh, to their arena downtown. PJ had to move um, to the middle, uh, the middle, lands to play. Uh, we had to leave Robert Center, which one of the great home courts ever and only 3,500 seats, but they were all right on top of the action. And so it was a great home court. But playing in the Boston Garden, I mean, who's going to complain about in the Boston Garden? But the problem was for the students, especially if the weather was bad, they weren't going to come out of the dorms to go to the games, which they would do at Roberts Center.
0: You know, if this were still the if you were still in the ACC at uh, Maryland. You could go back and coach because you'd be about the youngest coach in the ACC if you went back now. Yeah, my boy
1: Bayheim's older than me. Yeah. uh, Shashevsky's a year behind me. He's finally uh, calling it quits. I did it for 43 years and I I, I was never going, and the game was really good to me. I mean, I never thought uh, coming out of New Jersey I was ever going to make any money or anything like that. And so I never wanted to cheat the game. I always wanted to coach at my best, you know, I wasn't going to win all the time, but I, I could give it my best effort and just health wise and everything else. I thought it was time. And, um, you know, there's times you miss it. You, you really miss it. But there's times where you're glad because you still can swing a golf club or, or whatever. You know, I I, I look at uh, what those guys go through and it's it's a little tougher now, media wise with all the social stuff that's out there and everything. I was I it was just coming in when I stopped coaching. And I even for the players, it's it's much harder because they go back to their dorms and you know they being called names because they missed a free throw the night before in a in a game. I mean, things like that, that just they weren't around then. And and so I coached at a good time. I, I was forced to coach in the Big East when I did. The league was had just moved into uh, Madison Square Garden for the conference tournament. Uh, two teams won the national championship when I went to Ohio State in a three-year period. Both Indiana and Michigan won a national championship, and we could compete with those teams. We, we were good enough to compete, you know. So I, I, I was very fortunate. And then took come back to your alma mater to coach—that never happens, you know. It, it, very rarely will that ever happen.
0: When you won at Maryland, the press was so happy for you. The media—you were just people in the media loved you. But can you characterize the differences? You coached in the Big East, you coached in the Big Ten, coached in the ACC. Uh, give me each of those conferences.
1: Well, the, the Big East was, uh, I don't think anything could duplicate that as a place to coach. Um, Dave Gavitt, Mike Tranghisi had done such a great job of forming that league. When nobody ever thought you could have a league in the Northeast, you know, that wasn't going to happen. And I think it was $50,000. You had to come up with $50,000. To join the league, which seems like, are you kidding me? You know, national TV, everything you get out of that, the whole. But like everybody was really reluctant, including Bill Flynn. In fact, I know that Holy Cross was asked before BC to join. Uh, I think Rutgers was asked to join uh, before any of those teams because they had a lot of Catholic schools. But the schools that came in, that that thing went from no conference. To 1982, playing in the Boston in the Madison Square Garden, playing nationwide TV twice a week on ESPN because ESPN had just come in; they needed programming, uh, and so here was the Big East. And Dave sold the idea of all the major Eastern cities having a team, and you know Georgetown was Georgetown with John Thompson, Raleigh Massimino at, at Villanova, uh, PJ comes in at Seton Hall, uh, Louis Cornesecca at, at St. John's, and. Brother Beheim up there in uh, Syracuse, and Tom Davis who was at BC when
0: it started. Well, and Ra- Raftery was there first. Yeah, he was
1: there first. So it wasn't Hadi Mahan in there for a little while?
0: Yes, yes. Well, yes. Well, I remember um, Bill telling me one time, I got to work with all these guys in the tournament, and uh, I remember, Co- well, covering Raftery when he'd wear those plaid jackets, which- Oh, yeah. He- I don't remember. But and then he would stomp on it. Remember if he got upset? Yeah,
1: that Billy, Billy's Mr. Cool when he does the uh the little color on TV. Right. Right. He was Mr. Kiss. Cool when he coached. I know right. that.
0: No, he was crazy. But he told me the story. All of course, all you guys would go to golf over in Ireland. And he said one time he borrowed Bayheim' shoes and they wind all the way up the fairway.
1: Bill Billy was so good. He he could he could get to you. Very subtly, you know how he is with, with what he says. And there, there is not one person that doesn't like Billy Raptor. But the great thing about those trips that we went on, Dave Gabbard did all the organization, and PJ, you know PJ, he, he would just kill Gabbard all the time. Dave, how come the car wasn't here to pick us <laughs> up? You know, he just start the first. You get off the plane coming from the United States, he just started, keep it going from there.
0: Those days were also where. Coaches would actually—they might go out to dinner after a game at Seton Hall. You know, they might. You know, they, but now, my God, you know, now it's coaches arguing with each other, and maybe the oh, physical yeah. distance. There,
1: there, there was not much money back then. Uh, there, there was nobody was getting rich coaching. Now, people, get, you can get rich coach. but so the idea was you were coaching because you loved the game, and so if you knew other guys that loved the game, for those two hours you coached, you might be. And you were. You were very competitive. You honored each other. Roy Massimino and I got into some great shouting matches. I followed him downstairs in, uh, <laughs> and, uh, at BC one time. and He turned around and he wanted to know why I was following downstairs. I said, because I know you're going to the referee's locker room and get on him. And I just wanted to be there to hear what you said. So he called me a young punk, which I appreciated uh, at the time. And uh, Roy had to go to his own locker room. But you know, things like that after the game, we were laughing, you know, and, and that's that's what it was back then. You had your two hours where you were as competitive as that league was as competitive as any league I ever worked in. And just great coaches. Patino came in later on. Calhoun came in after I left, you know, and um, just just it, it was going to be that way. There, there was no easy out. Every game you played was a big game. Most of the teams are ranked in the top 25 in the country. And so, if you play Georgetown, you're playing against Patrick Ewing, played St. John's, you're playing against Chris Mullen, Bill Wennington, Mark Jackson, you know, guys like that. He plays Syracuse, Pearl Washington, you know, all, all those players. Villanova had the great team in 85 that beat Georgetown for the national championship.
0: People always say to me, Leslie, why do you do what you do? I've covered a million Super Bowls, World Series, Wimbledon. And I always say, uh, if people say, why do you do what you do? I say Villanova 66, Georgetown 64, because that was, and part of it, wasn't it that all those players played together in the summers? I mean, it would be Pinckney wasn't afraid of viewing.
1: A lot of those guys knew each other from five-star. That, that was the big, when you were in high school, you had to go to five-star Howard Garfunkel's camp to be seen. And so those guys got to know each other there. We didn't have cell phones where you had to tell the players before a game, like, you can't call those guys today because we're playing against them. They're not your buddies today. Do you understand how that works? And The players would be mad because they couldn't talk to the guys in the other team. And It's gotten worse, obviously. It's, it's gotten worse than that. But it, it was great. because, And it was an Eastern game. It was a very physical game. Uh, you, you better be physical. I mean, if you played Georgetown or Villanova or Syracuse, teams like that, if you weren't physical, you lost. You know, it was just the game was called a certain way in the Big East and uh, you had to adjust to
0: it. Uh, when you talked about, um, you mentioned Rick Pitino, would you ever want a Maryland to go for somebody older, experienced, or do you think it's better served getting like a Nate Oates on the rise?
1: Well, you know, the, the, the standard answer is uh, you just want a great coach. Um, <clears throat> that's what you want. And, and you never know where the way things are now. Co- coaches have, uh, big buyouts in their contract. They have um, uh, situations where they're making a lot of money, even though they might think the Maryland job might be a better job. They know what they have. They have five years at $4 million a year. That's guaranteed. That's theirs. So would you take a chance and take another job? So you have those group of coaches. Then you have the up-and-coming young guys. And you got to be a little lucky there. you, you got to pick you know, like BC hired me. I coached at American. U. well, there was no idea that I, I could coach in the Big East. I hadn't proven that that I could coach at that level. So you 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 have to get a little lucky, uh, unless you do hire. You know, you know, a Rick Pitino. Nobody argues about his coaching ability. He's one of the great coaches ever. Uh, pro college doesn't matter wherever he coaches. But there are some other things that you think about. You know, for your school and for the future of the program because. You don't want to go through this every four or five years. You you want to get a guy that's going to be a program coach. Lefty was there for 17. I was there for 22. You know, that's the type of consistency that you'd like to see with a program. So we'll see how it works out.
0: I'm sure you watch all these games. And do you find yourself saying, OK, I, I get it. I get it with uh, like I always thought. Kevin Willard was incredibly underrated because God bless PJ, God bless Raftery. But that school is just really hard to coach at. And it's hard to be, you know, he stays there and in the high mix. But um, do you find yourself weighing everything when you're looking at games? Do you say, okay, I'm looking at the program. I'm looking at who they're playing. I'm looking at who he is.
1: Yeah, I I think having coached um, might be a little advantage for me, you know, to give some input because. Like you said, Kevin Willard, that's a good example. Like, he probably maxes out what you can do at a Seton Hall. In other words, nobody could do better. I thought PJ did the same thing. Not sure about Raph, but, you know.
0: Raph wasn't sure about Raph.
1: No, No. but uh, it it was um, that that's definitely something to look at. There's hot people every year. Uh cooley at Providence is very hot right now. You he's think
0: had- he'd leave there? I don't think he'd ever leave. He's Providence. a Providence
1: guy, you know. Then that, that's is. the other thing. You, you think, well, Providence, Maryland, maybe Maryland's a better, you know, but no, he, he's he grew up there. You know, I mean he
0: always says, I know every cop, I know every uh, what's going on at the bakery. He's he got owns the, whole the town,
1: city. he owns the town, and he's the mayor now. I mean, yeah, you know, you're having a year that he's having. I mean, he's filled that uh Duncan Center, you know, that they play. Yeah, at. yeah you know, sure. that there's a lot of and see, that that's the fear of the unknown, too, for a coach. In other words, there's Ed Cooley, good example. Great job. Uh, traditional biggie school, done everything. All of a sudden this year, he's got a shot going way deep into the NCAA tournament. So do you leave that, once you've gotten the school to that level, to take another job? Because, you know, I don't know how much money he makes. I'm sure he makes good money now. Um, but, you know, maybe he could make a little more money somewhere else. But is it worth it? And you have to watch it in, in coaching because a lot of times, like when I took the Maryland job, for example, we signed Jimmy Jackson at Ohio State. Once you get the player of the year in Ohio, you're going to own the state recruiting. And Ohio is a great basketball state, still is. And I leave to go to Maryland. I walk into two years no NCAA tournament, two years no live TV, and I go, what did I do? Uh, you know, I thought I threw away my career when I by taking the job that I never thought I'd have a chance to get. So I just I didn't even look at, you know, yeah, I'll go, I'll go to Maryland. And really, if if you step back and look at that, that probably wasn't a very smart move because you own Columbus, Ohio. Once football season's over, you own that. Those same fans that make football such a great situation. They're big basketball fans, going back to John Havacek, uh, Lucas, you know, Siegfried, all those guys played in the NBA. And um, we we were going to get it done at Ohio State.
0: Do you think that anybody who's thinking Maryland? you've shown it that that is a program where you can win a national championship.
1: Yeah. I I think that's important. You can say, you know, we're going to be good enough to win a national championship, all that, but you you kind of had, had to do it. And, you know, you think of all the good basketball programs that certainly were good enough, but have never won a national championship. And it's just weird how that works. But so when you try to attract a new coach, you certainly use that. Look, we, we got it done and we, we got it done in a situation where it wasn't a great situation. The situation's better at Maryland now in terms of the groundwork uh, to establish a program. You know, we did all that, that, that after the whole bias, Bob Wade situation, it, 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 we had to rebuild whatever had been built there. And so now it's, it's there. Uh, it, it's going to take work. Uh, I lost a little bit of the fan base uh, the last couple of years, but, we can get that back. We just have to be good. I mean, I mean there's, there's no way around it. Once again, in a metropolitan area, you have to be good. That, that's that's number one. So you have to be have to hire hire a coach that has that ability to make the program good. You don't have to win everything. You don't do anything right away, but you have to get people believing that you have a shot to be really good, and then then you have a chance.
0: But don't but don't you think that if you were somebody like maybe not brad stevens he might not have left butler but was he really going to get it done there i mean obviously he rimmed out he could have but um those kind of coaches seem to me very attractive to a school like maryland because you have plenty of players right down there to recruit from you're probably plugged in to uh, the imgs and the oak hill you know you're plugged sure. into those plus um, there is NIL money, isn't there, at Maryland? Or or do you fear it's all going to the SEC going forward?
1: That game that game is a whole different game. And I, I just noticed the NCAA, in their wisdom, is going to go back and revisit that. Because they just said, oh, it's OK. You get paid for your likeness. <laughs> What's that mean? You know, yeah. so here's Texas A&M in football. They raised $25 million to use in recruiting. And each state has different laws. You know, this isn't a national thing. Each state can establish whatever laws of they course. want. A state can say, OK, I want somebody in the athletic department to monitor the money. Uh, but that's the re- only restriction on that. If you're in a big football state or or whatever. Yeah. Well, think about that. So I'm going to give a kid. And how about a kid that's um, a top 10 basketball player coming out of high school? OK, I can visit this school. They offer me $200,000 right. $2. like this next weekend. I'm going somewhere else. They're going to offer me 300000 And it's going to be a bidding war on these kids. Does the A ever think of those
0: ramifications
1: when they decide to pass something?
0: It's amazing. I had this conversation with Jay Wright. Don't you think that Catholic schools are going to get killed in this? They don't have that money.
1: Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I think the smaller schools get killed because they just don't have the numbers of alumni out there that can do things like this. But you get like, and maybe the Big Ten has an advantage. I don't know because they're large state schools that make up the Big Ten for for the most part, and so uh, maybe that's a, certainly an advantage of football. I know that in the Big Ten, uh, but how do you, how do you compete if you don't want to play that game? If, if you don't want to, if, if, if this likeness thing, this could be the end all. Plus, what about the players on your team that don't get any money? Like I'm sitting next to a guy that's making. $300,000 this year. I'm supposed to get him the ball. I'm a guard. I'm supposed to give him the ball in basketball. Are you kidding me? Even if you're open, man, I'm firing. I'm not giving you the ball. I don't get any money. I don't get any money.
0: They, I mean, Jim and I had this conversation. He sees it the way you see it because he's having Buddy um, spread it around the locker room. But I don't know that. I mean, it's not, maybe for the guard with the assist, but it's not, it shouldn't be another player's fault if somebody's the best rebounder on your team and he gets it done. I mean- oh, it's not
1: the player's fault. It, this this is this 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 is adults making these decisions. You know, hey, if, if you if you want to take it to, to, to a little further, we no longer have in the power conference schools. We're not talking collegiate sports. We're talking about pro franchises. We're talking totally. about pro yeah. leagues. And so if that's what they want, they, they have it.
0: Were you surprised when Tom Izzo asked you to be his presenter? Tom Izzo said you always look miserable in your career. And then he asked you to be his presenter.
1: Yeah, well, well, Izzo doesn't exactly look like uh, he's having fun either. Well, that's, you know?
0: well, that's true, too. Maybe but it was like, an identity. Well, here's the thing. My,
1: my question was, he called me. We had known each other. In fact, my toughest loss other than in the semifinals in 2001, uh, We lost in the last second shot to Michigan State out in Spokane. And our next game would have been against Northern Iowa to get to the Elite Eight because Northern Iowa had upset Kansas. And so we lose that game. We thought we had the game one. It was a weird shot. It went in and everything. And we've remained friends since that point. That was 2010. So when he called about, you know, uh, being at the big, at the uh, Hall of Fame one, I go, what? is Magic Johnson busy tonight? Or right, what? Greg you know, Kelser what
0: was, or somebody else? You know,
1: <laughs> those guys, what are they? But, you know, they, I, I, I was, it was just, uh, Tom and I have a great relationship. In fact, uh, he came in and raised uh, a lot of money in Baltimore uh, before the season started, right before the pandemic. he. Uh, there's a thing that uh, we do to raise money for kids, and Tom was willing to come in for that. So he's one of the good people.
0: He's a great guy. What do, you, what do you think about the handshake line?
1: I, you know, it's, I probably will get in a little bit of trouble. But if, you, if, if, if we've gotten to the point where coaches can't do a good enough job of teaching their players about competing and during a game, anything goes, angry, whatever, whatever it takes, the buzzer goes off, you can't shake hands with the people you played against where college basketball is in a sad state if we can't do that. So all those people right away, they go, oh, we shouldn't have the handshake line. No, take the tough road. Let's make it where we can have a handshake line. Let, let's do that once in a while still in this country. see another, oh, here's how you handle that. Do away with the line. Then you don't have any problems. Yeah, but that's 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 part of learning how to be an athlete, which in turn teaches you how to be a good husband, a good wife, you, you, you know, whatever, you, you know, you learn how to handle things when they don't. What do you think? Everything's going to go well the, your whole life or, or whatever. And so I I just think we have to have it. I, I I think that that that's that was a good example where, OK, we're not doing a good enough job with it. So let, let's work on this and make it part of college basketball. That's something that should be special to college basketball or high school basketball. You know, that that's fine. And. We have to be able to do that. If we can't do that, then we shouldn't play the games. When I was coaching, if you know, you lose a game at the buzzer, and by the time you start walking up toward half court to shake the other guy's hand, you're thinking about what you're going to tell your team because you don't want to lose your team. You, you, you want to walk in there and say, okay, we'll be okay. We, you know, we, we lost a tough one tonight, but we'll have a great practice tomorrow. We'll be ready to go and all those things. So who's thinking about talking to the other coach anyway?
0: And that was my conversation with Gary Williams. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.